to developing that video. All right, so today we're going to jump back into the second of uh, three talks that we're giving on Jesus' manger and the actual effect that it has on our life. And I want to share with you a story. Uh, I share a lot of stories from my family life, one because I I genuinely think it's just entertaining, and all this stuff is really true. And so um, a couple of years ago, had a really interesting uh, interaction with my son. He was eight at the time. He's pushing 10 now. But, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we have a lot of kind of traditions in our household. Uh, one of them, at the, to this point anyways, is we snuggle on the couch a little bit. He's getting a little older, so I'm sure my days are limited with that. But when he was eight, we were having a little bit of a, a snuggle session. He was kind of sitting next to me, and I had my iPad next to me, and I, had, uh, I was kind of checking some email very quickly. <clears throat> and I had opened up one of those advertisement emails that you get this time of year. Obviously, uh, Christmas, uh, November, December. This is one of those times a year where you're just bombarded with sales and all these other things. So I had uh, opened this email, and, you know, it's very colorful, and it's designed to draw your attention to stuff. And I had just basically bit the, the hook and line of what marketing does. I started looking through this email to see what was going on. And it was one of those traditional emails. Everything was for sale. Like TVs were cheap. Uh, toys were on sale. Buy one, get one free. Video gaming stuff, electronics, sporting equipment. Essentially, if you wanted it, you could find some kind of a deal on it. And so in an e-jerk way, I started looking at this email. And then I noticed my son was doing the, the same thing. You know, we were kind of fighting for iPad scrolling time and looking through this thing. And <clears throat> I didn't really find anything that caught my eye, but my my son apparently found something that caught his eye. And the reason I knew this was because he, he kind of belted out this, this cry of enthusiasm, one of these kinds of things, like, oh, you know, like when you're in a store and you get really excited about something. And so I looked at him to try to figure out, you know, what was going on there and see why he was so excited. And there's lots of high-dollar items on this, you know, page. So I'm thinking he's going to say something like, I want that, you know, crazy good-looking bike or an Xbox or whatever the other big items were. But he said, look, he pointed to the bottom of the page. He said, look, Daddy, man, they're selling beef jerky for like two fifty a bag. And that stuff is no only like six bucks, right? That's what he said to me. And so I, I, we value humor in our family. I just lost it. I started laughing. Uh, so many thoughts went through my mind, but I didn't realize that my son was uh, such a connoisseur and so cost conscious about dehydrated meat. Uh, it, it had appeared to me that uh, at that moment, he believed the reason uh, for the season was that God had provided us cheap jerky. And so uh, <clears throat> I was thankful for that, and we got him some. My son loves beef jerky. But uh, thankfully, a few days later, we have an Advent tradition we do in our house, similar to what we do here. We do it on a daily basis in our home and kind of talk through the story of Christ's coming. We were able to, uh, to marry his excitement about beef jerky with the reality of why God had actually given us this, uh, this Christmas season. So the real thanks for him at that moment, we were hoping to kind of shift his attention uh, to what we're talking about over these next weeks. And that is that Jesus, uh, Jesus was sent to the manger to redeem us through his gospel of peace. And he invites us to live sent in the very same way. And so like we said last week, each, each of these talks is a standalone talk. You can grasp something from it, but they are also designed to be tethered together so that there's a, a clearer understanding, if you will, of the manger and what it represents in our lives. Last week, we talked a good bit about the theological reality of the manger, what, what it symbolizes and what it physically means for God's people. And I think what we're going to learn today is that, much like a, you know, in a silly way, we talk about the beef jerky story, but there are many offered meanings for what Christmas is about in our culture. But for the Christian, there is only really one true meaning. So we have to value some of these things. I'm not saying everything that goes in our world regarding Christmas is bad, but I am saying uh, for us to truly follow Jesus well, we have to make sure that those things are always peripheral to the primary uh, you know, definition and reason for why Christmas even exists. And this is what this series, Jesus is Manger in Your Life, is designed to help us understand. And so last week, we pointed applied or pointedly looked at why God sent Jesus to earth. That's the study for last week. 
And we pointed out how it is one of the greatest evidences that he loves us and is for us. We referenced a great verse in Hebrews. And because God is for us, here's where we're going to be moving now for this day. Because God is for us, those who claim to be for God are expected to be for other people in the very same way. In other words, here's what I'm saying. Um, Because Jesus first loved us and lived for us, part of being made in the image of Jesus is that we are supposed to love others and live for them in the same way Jesus did for us. This is really the practical reality of what what Christmas means. There's lots of beautiful truths that come out of it, but this is one of the driving ones. And it leads me to the first truth that I want to share with you this morning. Jesus in the manger gives us a very clear picture of of what missional living looks like, of what it means to not just go on a mission trip, but to actually have uh, the central redemptive mission that Jesus kind of set up when he came to earth, right? We said it wasn't, an, it wasn't essentially, um, let me put it this way. It wasn't that that was when mission began, but the New Testament really gives us a clear example of when the mission of Jesus began. In the Old Testament where we had lots of, uh, lots of great movements and works where God desired his people to be a blessing to the, to the world, to the nations, right? To help people understand the goodness and the grace of Jesus. So today we essentially pick up our chapter in that story until Jesus returns, his second advent. And I want to share with you what I shared with you last week. I want to reread to you uh, our third value as a church. In case you don't know, our church has five guiding values that dictate everything uh, we do. They're the filter for what we do and don't do. And at the center of this is this idea of Christian mission. And I want to read to you what our value says in case you were not here this week. Or if you were, maybe just meditate on it again for a moment. It says this. The God of the Bible has always loved and relentlessly pursued his fallen creation. Mission is rooted in the nature and the character of God. It's, it's something that he does, but it's also something that he is. He's ascending God. And as Restoration Church, our particular body, our missional value influences everything we do. Because mission is not merely an activity of the church. It can be an activity, but it's not solely just an activity. It's essential to our identity. It's part of the substance that makes us what we are. So to be ascend people means that the earthly work God began through Jesus is to be continued by God's church. So it began in the manger, but it's to be fleshed out in our lives until Jesus returns. And so for those following Jesus, living on mission means you should desire to love people in the very same way that Jesus first loved you. And that's a big statement, I know, but it is a pretty important one, and I think it's a clear one. If you want to know what, what it essentially means to live on mission, it means to recognize the grace and love Christ has shown you, and then to want to show that to other people when you sense they are without it. And here's why this part of this conversation about the manger really matters this time of the year. I'll never forget a conversation. You know, you guys are talking to people, and hopefully you're listening through cultural cues and the things that people are saying. But I, I had a really interesting conversation with a city employee once about Christmas and the, the season. And throughout the course of our conversation, we spoke about a lot of things, but one statement really stood out. Uh, it was basically said to me that because of the up and down nature of the economy, and granted, our economy is getting better, but there are still long-term and lingering residual effects from it. They said that uh, there have been a lot of people who have fallen on very hard times in Port Orange proper. And when you look at Port Orange, you don't traditionally look at it as a place that's fallen on hard times. But I assure you, there are people locked away in their homes who are probably not as energetic about this season we are entering, the Christmas season, as you guys are here today. And so in that brief but honest commentary... I was reminded about a constant reality that exists right at our doorstep. It might even exist, you know, I mean, to the left and right of the homes you live in or the apartments you rent. One that if we're not careful, I think the the Christian church can easily and often does easily insulate itself from. What she was doing, she wasn't putting it in our vernacular, but she was talking about a very different side of Christmas. She was talking about a side that isn't necessarily filled with, with, you know, big family dinners or Christmas caroling. 
Rather, she was pointing out some of the hardship and the pain that is highlighted for people during this season. And for some people, this is not a season where, like Advent, we're trying to be reminded of what we have. At the top of the list is that Christ has come, our Messiah is here, and his presence is with us forever, right? This is a pretty, this is a pretty get, big gift. We, we talk about what we should be thankful for during this season. That's at least what we're trying to do. But for some people, this is a stark reminder of what they, they don't have. And it, it, it evokes in them a feeling of thanklessness. It sharply reveals the contrast between feast and famine. And so we are in a season of hope. That's the point of this. But there are people around us that are without any. And for some, this is one of the hard realities of, of what this season also means on the other side of the fence. For some people, it even calls into question whether or not they want to go on living. I mean, every year, uh, there is always a spike in both suicide and depression cases during the holidays. It is a stark reminder of the challenges of life for some. And this is what I think is most uh, ironic, or perhaps most ironic, about the Christmas season. It is a time, I mean, quintessentially, it's a time that God says, I want you to be reminded of my goodness and grace. Those of us in Jesus, we, we have experienced that. And through us, God's saying, I want the rest of the world to know this, right? It's a time where God is declaring to the world that we are valued and we are cherished in his eyes. That's what the manger represents. So loved and so cared for that he sends himself to earth to relate to us, to know us, to experience life as we do, and then eventually to die and redeem us. Yet for some, right, it becomes the time of the year. God says, look at me, and I'm going to give you hope. But for some, it becomes the time of the year when people are looking at everything but God and they feel anything but hope and they certainly don't feel cherished. And so as believers, as followers of Jesus, it can be all too easy for us to just think about Christ coming from the inside of the walls of this theater. We can sing about God's light in here, which is important. Please hear me. This is, a, this is equal on the scale. This is the foundation of what we do when we leave this place. We sing about God's light in here. But if we forget the fact that when we walk out of this place, and, and right now for some even in this place, we are surrounded by people who are still suffering from the weight, and I would even go so far as to say the bondage of the darkness. Right? That's the reality of Christmas. It highlights the light and the dark. However, a proper understanding and application of Jesus' uh, mission in the manger, it cannot allow us to live that way. This is the difference from, from embracing marginal or nominal Christianity and actually really trying to be the mirror image of who Jesus is. When we look at the manger, it, it completely it disallows us to function this way. Because the nature of Jesus' mission is all about God showing us how he wants us to live for others based on how we actually live. This is not theory for Jesus. The manger is the inception point of saying, here's how I lived, and here's how I would like you to live. So think about this, right? On one hand, when the Bible says that Jesus became a man, it teaches us some incredibly deep and powerful theological truths about who God is and the lengths that he went to redeem us from the curse of sin. That was last week's talk. On the other hand, though, Jesus becoming a man also reveals to us the definitive way that God desires us to live and labor for him and the people of our city, the people in your lives. Jesus' words and deeds, I mean, fundamentally, they show us what matters most to God. That's one of the things Jesus does. He says, here's how I live. Here's who I am. Here's what I believe. Here's how I function in the world. And what I am is what matters most to my Father. Now think about this. As followers of Jesus, what matters most to God should matter most to us. Because we are, recalled to ref- we are called to reflect the image of Jesus. So Jesus gives us this, this palpable touch point of saying, you are like this. Because God is like this, and if I truly love God, then I have to be like this, or at least I have to spend my days asking for the grace and laboring towards becoming more like my Savior. 
So theologically speaking, we know, right, the incarnation of Jesus, like we have read about in Luke 2 and have kind of touched on other passages, it will never happen again that way, like it did in the first century world. When Jesus comes again, he's not coming back in a manger. He's coming back in power and authority, right? That, this, this is a historical event that we celebrate that has absolute present and future uh, implications. So it's not just a history event, it's, it's a living history event. But we have to remember that the incarnation, Jesus' is coming, also, it also gives us a present reality in how we live. Jesus will never come back to the earth like this again. But for those that profess faith in Christ, the Bible is clear that he's coming to the earth every day through us like this. In other words, he's no longer becoming flesh and blood in the manger. Jesus is now flesh and blood in us. Part of what it means to follow Jesus means that God has set us apart to live the way Jesus did for him, for the benefit of others. No longer does Jesus abide in the manger. He abides in our lives, in our hearts, in our bodies. And so where we go, if we are in Jesus, we are the physical representation and manifestation of who Jesus is. We go with his grace and with his authority, with his truth and with his life. This is why Jesus says in John, hey, I'm doing great things, but when I'm gone, you're going to do things way more amazing than I did while I was here. Because he's going to do it through millions and millions of people who love him and follow him. The kingdom, the kingdom blew wide open because of this event. And it's still blowing wide open if we will permit ourselves to actually live like Jesus did. And so this is why in an unrivaled way, Jesus in the manger gives those of us following him this amazing purpose in life. Because as God's image bearers in the world, we have a unique and privileged responsibility to represent God's grace in the world. So think about this. Like Jesus, we get to challenge the darkness on every front. Wherever we go, there are places where the grace and the truth of Jesus need to be they need to be there. And that's why God has put us there. We get to proclaim the light and life of God to others when he gives us those opportunities, whether that is through word or deed or a combination of both. When we choose to live like Jesus did by rolling up our sleeves and working in the world, remember, he trades, he trades what is a perfect unity with his Father in heaven for the rigors and the stresses of earth. He literally rolls his sleeves up and works in the world. And what I would say is that in a very significant way, in a deeply spiritual way, when you live like Jesus did, when you understand who he is in you, your identity, and then you begin to live like him based out of that, you are stepping into the shoes of Jesus. You're, you're carrying on his footsteps. You're carrying on his kingdom causes through the work of his local church now. It also means, kind of on a side note here, but an important one, it also means that like Jesus, you've counted the cost of what it means to follow God. When you think about moving from the pew, for lack of a better term, to actually serving the kingdom of God with mission or on mission, you have at some point deemed it worth subjecting yourself to the joys and the hardships often associated with Jesus' mission. So one of the realities of being a disciple of Christ like this means that you can expect to be regularly challenged in your work for God to the point where you might even have some days where you question why you should continue in it. I mean, we see this kind of with Jesus, right? He's in the garden talking to God about, about ultimately, I'll drink this cup, but if, uh, if uh, I prefer not to, but ultimately you will be done. We see that there are points where Jesus is wrestling with the reality of what it means to be human, but he's still fulfilling the will of God and perfectly. There are days, if we're going to be honest, when we have counted the cost and we want to pursue Jesus, that uh, maybe it's in February, right, when the light isn't so bright of the Advent candles, that we start asking questions that are, that are challenging. Maybe we start saying things like, I, uh, I have so much going on in my life right now. Why should I continue to live my life like Jesus as if it's not my own? It's hard enough to function with my own life, let alone uh, getting my head wrapped around teachings that Jesus gives us and Paul gives us about living for the needs of others, and at times even putting them before myself, saying, I've got great needs, but but your needs come first. Why should I do that anymore? 
Or maybe if you are, uh, you know, a high-capacity leader or a servant in our church in this place or outside of him, maybe you ask questions like, man, it's awful early to get up. I get up awful early to kind of set things up or to, to break things down. There's so much work that has to go on in this building, in this place. Why should I continue to tithe my whole life, right? That's what we talk about, stewardship. My whole life by the standard of Christ-centered generosity. My time, my talent, and my treasure. Why should I, why should I see this as God's? Why should I sacrifice for his mission for here and in the personal places God leaves me? Maybe you're saying, sometimes I think about my life before Jesus and it was a lot easier before I got into the Christian thing. Because at that point, the most important person in life that I actually had to seek the approval of or actually live for was, was me. And I'm a lot easier to work with at times, maybe because I always agree with me and I always get behind what I want to do, right? Sometimes I think I'm the easiest person in the world to work with because... I don't ever disagree with me, right? But I find the more I follow Jesus, there are times that my thoughts and ideas do disagree with his. There's a reason for this. If you want to know why, maybe life seems a little easier. I think this is a perspective thing. I don't say I agree with this, but I say I get why it looks like it's easier before we pursue Jesus. The reason, the reason it's important for us to answer those questions or to go to our brothers and sisters when we struggle with them to have resolute clarity in them is because the Bible tells us that those actions, they're not just novel deeds, right? They're not even volunteer actions. We don't even use that word here. We don't volunteer for the kingdom. We are, we are birthed into it by Christ's blood, and then we are set apart to live sacrificially for the sake of others because Jesus first did it for us. We don't, really, serving the kingdom is not optional if you're in it. That's why I don't like the word volunteer. It signifies that we have an option to not follow Jesus at that point. And the incarnation is what actually gives us the grounds for this. When he becomes flesh, when he dwells among us, when he lives for us, when he sacrifices for us, and he eventually dies for us, he sets the pattern of saying, I am going to live my life for other people. It's a pretty powerful expression of God's love for us. God disadvantages himself for the benefit of us. Now, we live like this for others because Jesus first lived like this for you and me. And so please listen to me here. This is kind of the, if you take one nugget away from this first half of my talk, I want it to be this. If your Christianity, if your faith in Jesus is built on something less than this truth, like what 1 John teaches us, we love because we have first been loved, you're not going to make it. I know that sounds hard, but the truth is, is you won't make it. If you're doing the Christian thing for friends or for family or to feel good about yourself or for accolade or whatever else exists in our minds and hearts, at some point, it's going to stop being worth it because that is not, those motivations are not enough. They might be enough to stick you for a season, but they are not enough to stick you for the long haul of pursuing Jesus. At some point, the cost won't be worth it anymore. It will become too great if that's what is motivating your heart. Because to be a Christian means to be fundamentally rooted in who Jesus is. And to try to pursue him in any other way uh, is actually, you're rooting yourself into something else. And at some point, the stars will no longer align in what it means to be a follower of Christ. Faithfully being a disciple of Jesus and living on his mission really boils down to whether or not a person has counted the cost of what it means to truly love and follow Jesus. I would have loved to have been in the conversations. I mean, we know God's plan for the incarnation was was pre-existent. We talked about that last week. It always was this way. God created us knowing we were going to fail him. So they weren't disputing what to do, but I would have loved to have heard the dialogue that took place between God the Father and the Spirit and Jesus when they were talking about the the time has come, right? There was genuinely cost counting that had to go on there. And we see Jesus kind of revealing this a little bit in the garden. So part of following what Christ, uh, part of following Christ looks like this. It's having a genuine desire to seek the well-being of others to live sent, to go into your world with God's gospel of peace in the same way Jesus came into ours 2,000 years ago. 
And I would not say this will always be easy. I don't think it will always be humdrum or hard either. But I will say easiness or hardness, these are not the words God gives us to, to, to try to connect ourselves to mission. That's not the perspective we should be looking at this through. What I would say, and I think there's some strong biblical truth behind this, is that our love for Jesus should cause us to recognize that whether it is a hard day or an easy day, um, there is something deeply rewarding about what it means to live and function in the, su- the shoes of Jesus. There is something beautiful. It's, it's a bit absurd, but I think also powerful. What Paul tells us in Philippians when he talks about it being a joy and he, he references suffering and trial as a form of fellowship with Jesus. We can see the greats in scripture. They were not great because of what they did. They were great because they recognized who they were in Christ. And that's how, that's how being on mission when it is difficult actually happens. It's when we actually recognize that it is God's grace and his authority that keeps us connected to him. That's why it's so important that we, we, we don't just see this as a symbol, right, of what happened. We recognize that it, it, there is some form of symbolism behind it, if you will. But there is life in Jesus coming in the manger, and that life is what we have to be connected to to live like he did. So in a very powerful way, it connects you to your Savior. And this manger truth leads me to an action step that I want to share with you this morning. I feel like we've talked enough about the incarnation. I want to talk a little bit now about what we should do because of the incarnation. So I want to get very practical for today. Uh, the way you can live like Jesus did for others is to uh, make time to care for people. Now, at Restoration, uh, I, I kind of joke every time I do this, I, I really am not a big fan of acronyms. I never have been, especially the teaching construct. But there are three that we have really landed on at Restoration because they are powerful and I think they are valuable. Right? They help us to live the Christian life. So in the new year, I'll share the three with you very quickly. In the new year, we always do January 3rd. I think that's the first Sunday of the new year. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure. That first Sunday, we have our act service where we basically, as a church, we will communally pray through what it means to adore God, confess to God, give thanks for who God is, and ask him to supply our needs. We start the new year every year with this corporate time of guided prayer. And that is, Lord willing, not just something we do in January, but it's a refresh button for us to understand what it means to seek the face of God through our prayer life throughout the new year. Right? Shows us how to have a God-honoring prayer life. The other acronym we use, the second one, is the BLESS acronym. And there are cards in the foyer for this. Uh, This acronym shows us how to share our faith with somebody. Uh, And the idea behind that is that it gives us a place to think through how God is working in our lives and in the lives of other people. And it it shows us that we should be intentional about recognizing there are people in our lives who, who God is working in. And God has put us in their lives so that we can be the palpable touch point for Christ in that moment. Right? The third one, that we haven't touched this in the better part of three years, which is why we're bringing it up today, is the CARE acronym. And this is a great tool to help you structure your life to be on mission for God. And the foundation of this whole thing is that you actually want to be on mission for God. And so my hope and the assumption I have as we move forward is that this is a desire you have in your life. Uh, So let me be clear here. When we speak about the mission of Jesus... It doesn't require you, I say this a lot when it comes to, the, to kingdom mandates, it doesn't require you to find more time for it. It doesn't mean like you need to have another six hours on Wednesday to do something. I guess it could ultimately manifest itself in that way. But the kind of mission we're talking about here is the less sensational form of it. it it's the encouragement and the challenge to say, I want you to be more intentional with your existing time. Don't go find something new to do. Uh, unless God leads you to do that, obviously. What I'm saying is uh, it's important to recognize that what, you're, what you are already doing, God has provided a very firm and realistic mission field for you. There are already people in your life that you are already functioning with in a myriad of ways that you can begin living out Christ's mission with. So the first step in this whole thing regarding Jesus' mission is to make it a personal priority to want to connect with somebody. This is what the C stands for. If you don't 
value mission and you don't have this thought in your mind, the rest of this will not make any sense. It just will not matter to you. So the underlying assumption of this first step is that we have all made this conscious decision to have people in our lives who don't know God. It has to be there. We would not be here unless somebody else made this conscious decision. At some point in our lives, somebody, somebody recognized the love Jesus had for them and decided to show it to somebody else. And every one of us in Jesus in this room is here because somebody did that. People who might even be very, very, very far from God. Because what the, the incarnation shows us is that people were very, very, very far from God. And that's when Jesus decided to roll up his sleeves and hang out with us. This was a priority in the life of Jesus. It's one of the foundational things that the incarnation represents. He came to those who were without him and then tried to reveal the light of, of, of his Father in heaven to them. So people like this, no matter where they are on the spectrum, they can be found in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your restaurants, in your hobbies. It doesn't matter. Wherever you go, the bottom line is there are people who do not know God that are around you. And this statement that every one of us has people in our lives who God loves, right, but they do not yet love God, key statement, God loves them, he cares for them, and the manger is for them. They don't know that yet, though, in the same way we did it. There are people in our lives who we have to recognize God loves, but they do not love him yet. And because of that, it should shape the way we see them and care for them. And I'm not even talking about religious projects. We'll get to that in a minute. I just mean loving somebody altruistically and sacrificially in the way Jesus did for you, without the expectation of anything, with the hope of them knowing Jesus, but without the expectation of anything. What you'll find is that this idea is not a new one, and I'm not making it up. There are lots of examples in the Bible. I want to give you two, two uh, very powerful ones that normalize this. They basically say this is the norm. Two clear examples. Colossians 4, 5 through 6. So you've got Paul speaking to, uh, to a group of church people, basically. An existing group of Christians uh, called the, they're Colossians. Okay? So he says this, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. And by outsiders, what he means is this is not a term of like judgment. He's saying there are people who are in Jesus and people who are not. So be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. This is the intentional part. What he's saying is, look, there are just natural things happening in your life. Make the most of them. When somebody needs a shoulder to cry on, make the most of that opportunity. When somebody has a need you can meet, make the most of that opportunity. When somebody needs an encouraging word, make the most of that opportunity. You don't have to go to Africa on a plane. That's wonderful, and God honors that. But you can just go to work tomorrow morning, and you'll probably find this verse will be very real to you. Let your conversation, he says, be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And here the assumption is very clear. You have people in your life who do not know who Jesus is. And we have a responsibility to think about the way we act towards them. Colossians 4, 5 through 6. First Timothy 3, 7. This is speaking to pastors and elders. In other words, he's not just talking to the people of the church. He's not talking to the people God has set apart to lead the church. Speaking to pastors and elders in the same way, he says, they must also have a good reputation with outsiders. It's the same word. And so what he's saying here is, listen, you, you, no matter who you are, you have a responsibility to know that there are people around you that don't know Jesus and to love them. And so with each one of these words, it's going to be very quick. I want to take just a minute or two. And I want, I want to provide us a small place for prayer uh, right now. I want you to ask yourself, as you think about caring for people, um, if, God has put, uh, if God has put somebody in your life that you need to connect with that doesn't know Jesus, maybe you know who the person is, um, take a minute, just a quick minute, to think and to pray about who those people are. And then in whatever way you record information, whether that is on your heart, in your head, on a piece of paper, on an iPhone, whatever it is, take a minute to ask God right now if there is somebody in your life who he wants you to connect with. I'm going to be silent for a minute or two and just let you hear from, uh, from Jesus right now. I want you to personalize this, and I will do the same thing. We will do this together for this next minute. Pray about 
who God might have in your life right now um, to connect with. And if there is nobody, ask him to provide somebody. I know what you're thinking. Man, that wasn't enough time to pray. I know. You got to do that when you go home too. It's never enough time to pray. Hopefully you have somebody to connect with. Second thing, and we'll take a minute to pray through this also, is to recognize the role you play in that relationship. It's to ask God to use your relationship to help, help both of you grow in the Lord because that's what mission is about. So once you make it a priority to use your life to connect with people you don't, who don't know God, it's important to remember that mission, uh, living like Jesus, it is just as much about God ministering to us as it is God ministering uh, to others. Very important statement. It's about both of us at this moment. And knowing this will help you to avoid what I touched on a minute ago, the common feeling that people have had with, with some Christians. I am incredibly thankful to say this is not our issue here. So this is uh, more of an encouragement than it is a caution um, where people feel like uh, they're a religious project in your eyes, right? People have felt this sense. And so the way to avoid this is to deeply and humbly understand the redeeming work that God has first done in your life. When you understand that Jesus first loved you, uh, it produces a humility and love for the way that you see and care for others, okay? So on the contrary now, if you don't see yourself as part of the mission uh, and you start to think you're God, what will happen is you'll start to look down on others and you'll, you'll think you're better than them. And this usually manifests itself in two forms. Uh, the first is spiritual superiority, and the second is a moral superiority. And so what happens is if you don't recognize you're just as fallen as the person you're talking to, you're, just fa- you're fallen under the grace of Jesus now, what happens is somebody will feel like a project, and they will not sense the love of God from you or your God in heaven. And again, I want to say this. This is a place where our church, I think, really shines. We have a real heart posture of doing things just because we know Jesus has called us to do them. And we have seen God bring fruit out of that. But, but we, whether there's fruit or hard ground, we labor based on the command Jesus has given us, not on the, the, uh, the expectation that we'll, we'll receive fruit. We pray for it, but nonetheless, we want to make sure that we know. Um, you know, Jesus was the greatest. He was the greatest kingdom labor, laborer ever. And we see both fruit and times of dryness in his ministry with people. So this is an encouragement to keep on in this area. Uh, ask God to use you. Uh, to minister to you as you minister to others. But I also want you to take a quick moment 
to, uh, to, give us a, to give you a chance to pray about this, to see right now, maybe you already know somebody you need to connect with. Ask God if there is somebody it's time to take a step with. Maybe, maybe you're long overdue in the ministry uh, to this person, or maybe you know that you, you've needed some kind of a nudge from God to begin caring for them, or maybe you're at a place with somebody where it's time to talk to them about Christ. I don't know. Maybe you know somebody who's fallen away from him. Wherever, wherever that connection point is, just take a minute to ask God if there is a next step. And be sensitive, if, even if there isn't, because that might be a very clear answer from it. Start that prayer now and certainly continue it through this week. But take a minute just to, to ask God what, what that particular work could look like in your life. All right, the third step in the acronym is, is to reproduce the attitude of loving and serving others uh, from the start of every relationship you have. And I'll be brief with these, these back-end ideas, but by this I mean this. Make sure as you are helping people, you're connected, you're asking God, you have clarity on what to do. Um, and if you're helping people experience Jesus, you're ministering to them. And Lord willing, um, if you're helping people really find Jesus, like they're, they're coming to Christ like we have, um, it's important that that incredibly special relationship that God has given you with that person, that you help them to understand that they are now supposed to turn around and do the same thing. Uh, one of the greatest marks of a disciple, and the often most neglected, is, is reproduction. Disciples reproduce. And so this is perhaps one of the greatest challenges facing those of us who really want to be on mission uh, and make disciples. Uh, it's what I like to call the problem of first-generation discipleship. We read about this in the pastoral epistles. Essentially, it means someone has made a disciple of us, but then we didn't turn around and make another disciple. And interestingly enough, just backtracking a little bit to the Nehemiah series, this was the biggest concern that was raised from our congregation, is that people felt comfortable being a disciple following Jesus, but they weren't exactly sure, and in some cases were entirely uncomfortable with making one, uh, with reinvesting the kingdom seeds that have been placed in their hearts into the lives of other people. And so what happens is, is if you function under this idea, over time you'll create a false dichotomy in your faith. You'll create two kinds of faiths. And a person will get to the place where they think it's okay to personally grow more in their own faith without any desire to want to help others find Jesus and grow in their faith. And I say this a lot, but it's worth saying again, while the desire to personally grow in Jesus sounds good on the surface level, 
Um, it's deeply problematic on every level for a Christian when it is disconnected from mission and disciple-making. That's that attitude we talked about last week. It's the first step in inward-focused Christianity. There is absolutely an internal and personal nature to our faith. But if it's only internal and personal, it takes us down a pathway that disconnects us from lots of very important elements in the faith. Because the truth is, the more you focus on you alone in your faith, the less likely you are to focus on who Jesus is. You'll start avoiding him. You'll stop living for others. You will not connect to the manger mission. Uh, And you might even walk away from community in its entirety because the faith at that point really becomes about you. This principle is true in every area of our faith. And the great reformer, Martin Luther, if you, if you are a reader, you should just pick up everything this guy has written. Um, he perfectly described, this is, this is an inclination of the human heart. That's what he's, we're talking about here. He said this, uh, when speaking about this issue, okay, uh, at least as far as, as far as us kind of focusing inwardly, he said this, the root of all sin is when your heart is turned in on itself. Let me say that again. The root of all sin is when your heart is turned in on itself. It might look differently, but the root of it is that it's, it's a focus on self. And the heart in Scripture is an analogous term used to describe the control center of life. So what Luther is saying is the natural inclination of the human heart, if left unchecked, is to live for and serve self. And the, the modern application I like to use of this is think of like you walking a 150-pound Rottweiler, right? It's a big dog on a leash, and the dog is constantly just dragging you. It's not a trained dog. So it is just trying to run you all over the place. But, but the reality of the inclination of the human heart is that that's kind of what the heart can be like when it's not being sanctified. It just constantly tries to run us back to self. It's, it's pulling us in the direction of serving self at the expense of others. And so living like this, if we really have self at the top of who we are, living like this means a person thinks Jesus' mission was only for them. That's where it ends. That after he redeemed them, you know, G- Jesus saved me. And he kicked back in heaven. He's like, it's good to go now. Anthony's squared away. I can just forget about the rest of the world. That's not the way that that works, right? We are part of a continuum of the way God is working in the world. His work is not done. We are part of it, but it didn't end with us. And so it's important when we talk about the tension between the inward Christianity and the expression, the way we labor for the kingdom with mission, to remember that Jesus does deeply love us. This is undeniable. I'm not trying to take away from that. I'm just trying to say, remember that Jesus does not only love you. He loves the whole world. So please be aware of and on guard for this attitude in your own heart. It's something we want to always be careful of. So with that in mind, we'll take just a quick minute to pray and to reflect on this. Ask God honestly and know that there is grace if you come to this conclusion. Ask God honestly if there are places in your life, and I will do the same thing, where we are turning in on ourselves. And the truth here is that we almost always do and almost always will have a place. So being honest about this is helpful. This is not a judgment zone. This is a place to just say this is the natural inclination of the heart. And so what we want to do is be frank with God about that, honest with the people we love to help us out of this. And we want to ask God right now um, for the grace and the strength to be led out of that. It's a super important spiritual discipline to be honest with God about this and to practice the regular the regular this is what we would call confession God I realize like I'm a little a little off base in this area of my life and I want you to help me be on base so show me your grace and let it be a catalyst for um for growth into the image of Jesus take a moment to ask God right now if you're inward in some areas and let him minister to you if you are
Okay, the last step. If you're connected, you're asking, and you're reproducing, is to remember you're not alone in this. Uh, enlist the help of your church family to help you get on and stay on the mission. So remember, uh, mission is both a, it's an individual sport and it's a team sport. And so I guess in this, I just want to say that it's important to know um, you are not alone in wanting to serve and follow Jesus. In fact, in our own ways, our whole church family, as well as many Christians around the world worshiping right now, they're trying to do the same thing. So see restoration and your brother and sister in Christ. See this as an opportunity to gather, uh, to be equipped, to motivate, and to encourage each other on into the work of the mission throughout the week. In other words, what I'm saying as your pastor is it's my heart's desire that you understand what we do in this place the connection points we have outside of this place and how we serve and bless people. Our church was never birthed to become a refuge to escape the world. That's not what it is. I've said before, uh, churches, by God's design, are kind of like gospel outposts. They're put on the forefront of culture trying to represent the banner of Jesus well. So our ministries and our mission efforts are not designed to be things that insulate us from what's going on in the world. They're designed to be equipping opportunities to support our lives for our mission in the world. And that's both individually and together. And your church family here, although the the concept of the church family today is definitely under attack, perhaps more than ever in in the time I've been pastoring, this idea of why why, I can love Jesus, but I don't need his church. This is a challenge in our culture today. But nonetheless, I want to share with you a couple of reasons why, when it comes to mission, this is important. Your church family can offer you a lot. For example, there are people in this room, staff, leaders, who can counsel you on how to connect with people. Maybe you're saying connect. I don't even know how to do that. There are people here who ask that question at some point in their life, and God has helped them to answer it how to shepherd people, how to motivate people more deeply to connect with Jesus, to connect with the church in a culture that can be very skeptical of it. We can help you to learn how to to wrestle with people's spiritual and physical and, and emotional issues. They've got stuff going on in their life, and they need somebody to help them through that. There are places where your church family can help you through this stuff, can give you wisdom. The bottom line in this is that although God has given each of us an individual mission, we are all much stronger when we connect that mission to the larger body of Jesus. So I'm saying let's work on this together. Let's recognize that, let's deeply recognize the grace we experience in here wasn't meant to stay in here. It was meant to be scattered everywhere in the world like salt. That's what you are. You're a grain of salt according to Jesus. And you've been meant to be, you're meant to be scattered. In the same way the greatest grain of salt was scattered in the first century world, we are granules made to be thrown all over the place and creating a vibrancy of life wherever we go for the name of Jesus. And so because this is such a central idea to the Christian life, scattered salt, next week we're going we're gonna to wrap up this series by talking about some of the, the challenges that keep people from being on mission. And the two biggest, we'll unpack these, but the two biggest are I'm too busy and I'm too tired. Uh, got too much going on in life. So we're going to definitely take some time talking through the things that keep us from experiencing this type of, type of a lifestyle. But for today, I want you to hear this. I, I, I'd like to close by challenging you to live out. It's true. It's a Christmas cliche, but it's a cliche that has far more meaning than it is often given credit for. Right now, ask yourself, what are you living for this Christmas season? What's your motivation? What's your drive? No matter what it is, right now make Jesus the reason for your season. Make, make it the idea, or make the idea that Jesus has come and he is for you, and you to be for others, the driving point of how you, you recognize these next weeks. Because in him, you have everything you need to find meaning and purpose in your own life. If you're here today without it, there is meaning and purpose and hope and truth and grace. Jesus has that for you. And in his grace, you also have, maybe you're packed to the brim with that stuff, and you were clapping this morning. That is wonderful. Know that Jesus has also given you everything you need to, sh- to share those same truths by caring for people that God has placed in your life who have yet to experience it. If you are with hope, then you are meant to distribute it to the hopeless. 
As you think about Jesus' manger in your life today, and we take just a couple of minutes in response, um, think about what it means to care for others like Jesus did. Ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you, and what are you going to do about it? Answer those questions, if you would, by reflecting on the prayer that will be behind me during our response time. And if you would now, um, we'll take a quick minute just to, to think and to pray about what we've talked about this morning. So each week at Restoration, we challenge you guys to do, to do three things, to connect your hearts to Jesus, to grow in his grace, and to serve others.